0: What's up, boys and girls, and welcome to the Sharp 600 brought to you by Covers.com. My name is Joe Fortenball. This is episode 83. And as always, thank you so much for your continued support of the product. We greatly appreciate you joining us here today. We're going to try something a bit different with episode 83. We're calling this a March Madness Knowledge Bomb. Now, generally, as I'm sure you've noticed... We tend to bring on guests with a gambling background, a sports wagering background to better serve us as we move forward with our personal sports betting. But today, I want to bring on a friend of mine. He has 20 years of coaching experience in the NCAA. He was an assistant at UCLA. He was a head coach at Santa Clara. His name's Kerry Keating. I work with him at 95.7 The Game in San Francisco. And I want to get the perspective of a coach when it comes to March Madness and conference tournament time. What attributes do you want to look for for teams that can make a deep run into the tournament? Who are some potential sleepers we should keep an eye on? Who are some overrated teams we should keep an eye on? What are the fundamentals to winning in March Madness. This is a guy who's been there. He's lived it. He's done it. So we want to bring him onto the program to share that knowledge with you so that we have a more well-rounded education when heading into the tournament next week. So uh, without further ado, pay that man his money. He spent 20 years coaching in the NCAA ranks with stops as an assistant at UCLA and as a head coach at Santa Clara. I've also had the pleasure of working with him here at 95.7, the game in the Bay Area. Follow him on Twitter at Kerry Keating 3. Kerry Keating joining us here on the Sharp 600. All right, let's start with the Big Ten tournament, which has already completed. Michigan is this year's champion. How dangerous is John Beeline's crew? And who else from the Big Ten would have the possibility of making a deep run this year, Coach?
1: You know, John has always been an excellent coach. It's funny you mentioned him right off the bat. My very first job in coaching outside of when I was an undergraduate was at Wake Forest University in 1993, 94, Tim Duncan's freshman year. And I was a, what used to be a graduate assistant, I was the administrative assistant slash video coordinator. And my first scattering report, solo, solo scattering report, was the Kenetius. I think of the Griffins, the Golden Griffins, coached <laughs> by none other than John Beeline. And, you know, it's, it's it's a little bit of a Warriors should beat the Nets type situation. Wake Forest should beat Canisius on January 1st in their last preseason, in their pre-conference game. But I can tell you how nervous I was even back then as a 21-year-old uh, young assistant going up against John Beeline. Now, we had better players. We had Tim Duncan and Randolph Childress. But... I knew even as far back then that this guy was the real deal, just has a great mind for the game, a very calm demeanor and communication level, and really takes a great approach to his recruiting. And it's no surprise that they're playing well at the end of the year because I think he's done as good a job of taking a long-term approach towards the season while going through the rigors of what the Big Ten can offer and obviously winning the Big Ten tournament and gaining the extra week off this year, Joe, by them selling out to Madison Square Garden to make sure they can put their Tournament in Rutgers' backyard, the last place Rutgers-Scarlet Knights move to the Big Ten and get to play the tournament in their backyard in the Garden. Uh, That media market gets to taste the Big Ten a week earlier due, obviously, to the Big East Tournament's prominence there. So you're looking at a Michigan team that's not only coming off a win and hot, but extremely well-rested, which I think is a little bit of an underrated value prop for teams heading into the tournament that Michigan should take advantage
0: of. You know, for Michigan, Michigan State, Purdue, some of the big dogs of the Big Ten, how much is that extra week going to help them? Some would make the case that the last thing you want to do is go on a break when you're running hot, but others would say the extra week gives you time to rest, gives you time to heal, gives you time to prep. Would you personally rather coach a team with the rest or just roll right into the tournament?
1: So on a lower level, and albeit a different lower level, my Santa Clara team has won two postseason tournaments in the CIT and the CBI, and we both, in both of those instances, played a WCC tournament still in the same week, a week early. We had the week off, and speaking from experience going into postseason play as a head coach, I relish the opportunity to not just have I wouldn't say at rest, but just a, a return to normalcy without having to worry about game preparation and for that matter, game playing, while you knew what your fate was and where you were going, it's just a matter of who you were playing. The biggest thing that you get that the NBA teams take advantage of during the season, that the pros that the college teams really don't, is repetition, especially shooting repetitions, and maybe some defensive scheming that maybe you come up with with that extra week. You don't want to have the devil take over your idle time and ruin your mindset of your team, but in a championship setting, a team coming off a championship, heading into another one to compete, I think the biggest benefit that a team like Purdue and Michigan get, being some of the favorites heading in just based on their talent and their overall season, is the fact that they're going to get an extra week's worth of reps with no consequences other than just to sharpen their skills and make sure that they're ready for that first round. Probably less prone to be upset in the first round, I would say, based on this extra week, but an interesting experiment to see if more leagues may turn to this given the fact that the NCAA tournament's kind of locked into where it is. March Madness starts second week of March.
0: You know, the ACC at the moment looks like it's Virginia in Tier 1 and then everybody else. The Cavaliers play a terrific brand of defense. The under has cashed in 20 of 27 games this season. How would an opponent go about attacking Virginia?
1: They really force you to make jump shots, which obviously in the college level doesn't happen in pass with all five guys You may run into one or two players, but they can load up to take away your best outside shooters. They make it very, very difficult to drive the basketball. The one place that they're vulnerable, if you're really paying attention to how they play defense, is on baseline drives. And It's kind of against the norm of what most teams do. Most teams, they try to take away the middle, uh, and they want to make sure that they force you baseline, whereas... Virginia is the opposite of that. They're forcing you to drive into the middle where there's more bodies and more help. and They're okay with baseline drives per se, but not if you can take advantage of the attack, what happens when you come behind the baseline drive. There are a few tweaks that you can really take advantage of. Nevertheless, they are a pretty good scoring team too now. This is not a team Obviously, it's going to put up a lot of numbers because their defense warrants that, but they do have players that can score. They have pro-type talent on that team so by chance be able to get them and hit that over number even if it's early in the game they still have guys that can put the ball in the basket and the top of their roster is certainly capable even though their points per game may not say that they're certainly capable of putting in 20 points when needed it's just a matter of if and when they need that and who they ran up against i, I think virginia more than anyone else really you'll get a clear picture on selection sunday of their chances based on the potential of teams team that they may face Teams with very good athletic drivers and more than three bonafide 40% shooters on the roster could be a tough matchup for Virginia.
0: What's like an example of a team that would be a really bad spot for Virginia?
1: Yeah, I, it's hard to tell because I, I haven't gone through You know, it, it, Even if I just look right now at the, at the statistics in the country of who can shoot the ball, now everyone would say they'd go right to the top of the pack. And a guy like Trey Young, who does both of those things, kind of – does it all and can can find open players. It's not to say that Oklahoma would be a matchup for Virginia, but you got to go and find guys that are teams that are shooting in, in, in the forty, in the high forties, in the high thirty-nine uh, percent field goal percentage from three. You know the, the dangerous teams too, and I and I know this from experience of playing and coaching a team at Appalachian State in the late nineties. Teams that really have nothing to lose. And we had a kid who actually was one of the country's leaders in three-point shooting on that App State team. And Rufus Leach, he made 100 threes in that year that we went to the NCAA tournament with that team. And we had the player of the year in the league at the point guard spot who had a lot of speed. Those type of mid-major teams that have senior-laden point guards. I'll give you a perfect example. A team like William & Mary coming out of the conference a uh, 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 CAA they shoot 43% from three as a team. You know, teams like I would dare to say even locally here, St. Mary's, with dynamic ball handlers and all the pick and roll stuff, may not work as much against Virginia. Calvin Hermanson, Emmett uh, they have guys that can put the ball in the basket at over 40% clip. Team like South Dakota State, these are teams you're going to kind of see in this bracket that are going to be in that 12-11 range, and all of a sudden they may break through and you find that 11-12 seed in Sweet 16. If Virginia ends up playing against the South Dakota State, against the William & Mary if they come out of their league, those are teams that could potentially get hot on any given day with nothing to lose. The ball goes in the basket from three, and Virginia's going to have a tough time.
0: Cincinnati 27-4, and Wichita State 24-6, and Houston 24-6, and three great records coming out of the AAC. How legit is the AAC?
1: Well, it's interesting you talk about those teams. Yes, they're all in the same conference, but – as you're running through them, I'm thinking about the, the, the mindset and, and the makeup of those teams, and not just in this season that they've been successful, but based on who their head coach is. Mick Cronin, Greg Marshall, Kelvin Sampson, these are all tough-minded coaches. They preach toughness. It's part of their DNA. Uh, it's no surprise that they got into a little bit of a rat race with each other at the top of this conference, and they came to the top not just with the talent they have, but they're defensive-minded where they can put points on the board, but their coaches have this demeanor about them that really doesn't. How about this stat? I, I saw this the other day, Joe. Greg Marshall has called in 30 games this year 30 timeouts for his team. That, that is one of, the most historical, that's one of the most historical stats that I've ever heard at any level. Not only does he have a, a, a potential NBA guard in Landry Shemat, but he also has a team that he trusts that has the toughness that has been instilled from their final four run years ago so much so that he trusts them and he only called an average, called an average of one timeout per game in an entire season. That's almost unheard of. It's something to kind of look forward to because those types of teams can respond to the adversity. And I think a team like uh, like Cincinnati, like Wichita State, maybe not Houston ready for that yet. They're certainly ready to potentially break through based on the success and toughness that they have.
0: You know, it's been an up-and-down year for the teams at the top of the rankings. Virginia's been solid as of late, but we've seen Nova and some of the other teams shuffle in and out of the top five throughout the course of the season. This year versus previous years, we've never seen a number one seed go down. Could you potentially see something like that happening this year?
1: Well, we all root for that, don't we? I yeah. certainly didn't root for when I was coaching, but we definitely <laughs> root for that as fans. Uh, it's such a daunting task for that 16 seed and that 15 seed, wherever they may be. I think mean, we've seen more 15s beat twos. I, I just think that the deck is stacked for the one seed because they've earned that right to have the pass, and that's kind of the goal if you have a chance to get that one seed towards the end of the season to lock it up because it does, in theory, give you a, a, a route to try to get to the Final Four because ideally what the committee wants is those four one-seeds in the Final Four because they deem those four teams as the best teams. Now, we all know that's not why they play the tournament. That's never happened and maybe never will happen. And we're all rooting for that 116. I I think maybe more more so now than ever as we move forward, the complacency of some of these higher-level teams. And and I'll give you another example, speaking from personal experience too, Joe. In my second Final Four, as an assistant coach at UCLA, our stated goal at the beginning of the year was to win the Pac-10 conference. Not the Pac-10 tournament, but the Pac-10 conference, because normally that would gain you a top two, maybe at worst a three seed. And if you then took care of business, you can break through and get a one seed, and then your, your, your path is laid out for you. We got that accomplished the second-to-last game at Washington State on the Washington State-Washington trip. And the team, the players, were so excited that they had gotten that goal accomplished that was stated by coach Hallen yet coach Hallen was so intent on trying to win the next game which was Washington where we hadn't won in a couple of years that this was this this Mexican standoff in the locker room do we <laughs> celebrate that we just won and clinch the Pac12 or do we business as usual yes this is good get ready for the next game in 2 days and i'll tell you what it ended up doing it ended up splintering our demeanor so much so that the players were so mentally beat down because what ended up happening was, as is usual, the coach wins, let's get to the next game, which we did at Washington and lost. Then we went as the one seed in the Pac-12, lost to the eight seed Cal, and the players had basically checked out. So it's possible that at the highest level, especially when you have a few guys on your roster that you know are not, this isn't the end game, the end game is for me in the draft in June, it's becoming more and more possible that you could find a team. I look at a team like Duke being vulnerable in that sense. You've got players on that roster now that are one and done type players, or players that expect to be have their names called in June. A loss the first weekend isn't going to hurt them as much personally as it will the team, because now they get a chance to start their whole trek in mass to the NBA. So. You might find that happening. I think it's all a matter of taking a look on selection Sunday and maybe seeing that on the other end, that one player that maybe averages twenty five, thirty game thirty points a game that can carry a sixteen seed against a somewhat complacent one seed. So here to this year happening before I ever get back into coaching because I don't want to be on either side of that, especially <laughs> that one seat if I have a chance to.
0: Eric Musselman has guided Nevada to a 26-6 and record, but Lindsey Drew, one of his best players, has been lost for the season with a ruptured Achilles tendon. How dangerous can Nevada be in the tournament in your opinion?
1: You know what's going to be tough for them, Joe? They only have seven scholarship players right now. They have four players who are sitting out per transfer rules, and obviously the loss of Lindsey Drew. You only need really an eight- or nine-man rotation, and Eric had that when Lindsey was healthy with their top eight. Now it's down to seven. Now I say that because the first round, you can get by on that. That second-round game is going to be a little bit more talent even than the first round potentially, especially with Nevada maybe looking at a a 7-10 to seed and now all of a sudden your second round game is against the one or the two seed if if in fact they make it through, you're going to need a little bit of depth, you're going to need a little bit of protection. It's very You're walking a thin line if you're going into this tournament as a mid-major or a high mid-major team, albeit a pretty talented one at Nevada, with only seven guys because any little thing happens, whether it's foul trouble in a specific game or a little bit of an injury tweak, God willing that doesn't happen to any of these players heading into March Madness, but it's such a fine line, and it's a one-and-done situation. It's not a seven-game series. You're not going to have time to recover. So it'll be, it'll be challenging. And I did hear, and I know that Eric likes to let his players dictate their own uh, level of fatigue. So he's, he's instilled a little bit of that self-coaching and that self-motivation uh, and self-adherence to, to when and where they can play. They're going to need that even more so head to the NCAA tournament if they want to get through that first mini-tournament weekend, the first two games in the first weekend after Selection Sunday.
0: You know, outside of Nevada, do you see any other potential dark horse sleepers out there like we got with Dunk City a few years ago?
1: Yeah, I don't know off the top of my head. I think Rhode Island's a little bit of a higher level than that if, in fact, they make the tournament. Um, I know. I think St. Bonaventure, a team that came out of of the Atlantic, Atlantic 10, is a higher level. I, I think that's what it makes for for great drama. Obviously, you have a team a team like Buffalo coming out of the MAC. Uh, you know, Middle Tennessee State is going to be everybody's sweetheart pick to get to the Sweet 16 because they're so talented and have a gaudy record. Yeah, we need to find out if these guys actually make it through on Selection Sunday, depending on how the committee goes. I don't know of any real team outside of those teams we mentioned we were chatting about, Virginia. Who can really break through? Because you need to have you need to have talent to get there. I, I think in the end, what you find out that luck can only go so far, and sometimes the other team isn't playing well. And if your best player is, you'll have the best chance. I go back to that App State team in the year 2000. We played Ohio State in a 314 game. We had a conference uh, scoring leader. We had the best guard in the conference. We had a, a confident senior-dominated team that had been to the conference championship two years in a row. And all it took was the first five minutes of the game for two or three of our shots to go down that we knew we would get. And I think it might have changed the entire complexion of the game. That's very much the case when these, when these tournaments happen. And especially when you get teams that are only playing in it maybe once in a while. Maybe it's not the team that's coming out like Gonzaga does out of their lower conference all the time with confidence. You get a team that comes in there maybe as a one-off, Teams that that comes out of the Big Sky Conference, a team like Montana who had a great year if they're able to break through and not slip up and win their conference tournament, they come in with some unbelievable confidence. And usually, if they've won their conference and their conference tournament, at that level, it equates to a player that can handle playing the other side. So if if, if Montana's playing Michigan State, the best player on Montana could probably play for Michigan State. So if you have one, or maybe if you're lucky enough at that lower level, two of those guys and some confidence and the swag of having a good year and seeing the ball go in more than not winning games, those are the teams that I really like to look at the first round that could potentially pick off one of the higher-level teams.
0: What do you make of Arizona and everything going on with Sean Miller? Is this going to be too much of a distraction for the Wildcats to overcome, or could it possibly serve as a rallying cry for a deep run in the tournament?
1: So much to unpack there because of the legality of what's happening with the FBI involvement. And obviously everybody and a lot of people, myself included, jumped to some conclusions of what came out of this purported tape that they have Sean Miller on. But I kind of look at what Sean Miller did as, you know what? We're going for broke, and it really isn't going to get settled before the tournament is over. And there's, there's rumblings out there, Joe, that a lot of, a lot of shoes may potentially drop either on Selection Sunday or the Monday following. Or the, the or on final four weekend or the or the Tuesday following, as far as more information of who else is involved. If Sean is privy to that information, even if he's not, I kind of like from the outside the power play that he pulled and was able to kind of get the support of, of his president and AD behind. You know what? I'm coming back and coaching. This isn't going to get settled even if I did or didn't do anything. DeAndre is going to be in the NBA anyway in three months, as is Raleigh Alkins and as is Alonzo Trier. And they got a little bit of a gift from the NCA and letting Alonzo Trier return from the supposed trace of PED in his system. I think the go for broke attitude is perfect because even if they go come back in five years and take the banner down, the money's already spent, the next job is already attained, the kids are in the NBA, and let the next guy deal with it. Now, that's not the best way to look at it for the long term if you like, really have a care about Arizona. But I think for the short term, what Sean Miller is saying is we have the number one player in the draft on our team, two more pros. I haven't made it to the Final Four yet. Although we've been to the lead Eight a bunch of times. This team can make it. We go through and come back and win the Pac-12. If we win the Pac-12 tournament, we're going to have a top two or three seed. We're going to have a route that we should take advantage of because if all this thing comes out that nothing happens, We would be remiss if we waited and created the distraction to say we're not going to do it and take air on the side of caution and then not get the opportunity to play, and then all of a sudden maybe, maybe not. So, So many things factor into that, and I think what Sean has done is basically come back and removed as much of that distraction as possible by getting back to normal as far as who's available and who's playing and who's coaching with his players and with him. And I think you're looking at an Arizona team that's going to be motivated based on all that because Sean for sure... Behind closed doors, is using it as motivation as a us against the world type type scenario that I think heading into the tournament could make them a dangerous pick. Not just to win and go to the final four, but also be a team that because of all that they overdo it to the point where they could easily lose in the first round too. So I think if you're doing the repicks, the uh, the, the five hour energy repicks, <laughs> you're re- you wanna, you want you want to repick yep. Arizona after that first round, pick them to lose in the first round. If they win their first game, I'd say a great pick to win the next three and make the Final Four.
0: I love it. Um, Everyone's got a system this time of year. I remember a buddy I knew in law school, he loved free throws and three-pointers. He thought that was the most important thing when it came to the tournament, teams that can knock down the three and knock down their free throws. So everyone's got a system. Having coached in the tournament, stats, attributes, whatever it may be, proximity from your school to where you're playing, what are some of the most important factors that make up a team capable of going on a very deep run?
1: I think first and foremost, it's confidence that you can beat anybody you're faced against because you, you, you can't go in there. Everyone's got a chance, right? I mean <laughs> – everyone's got a chance because they're in the tournament. Now, some teams at the end really have no chance, and as we talked about, we're rooting for that 16th seed to take that chance all the way to the first time beating a one. I, I like, the-, I like the-, the-, the the attention to three, made three-pointers, especially nowadays, and free throws. I think free throws are one of the most undervalued things uh, as far as college basketball goes. If the NBA you take it for granted, everybody can make free throws, that they're going to make their 25, 30 free throws a game. It's almost a given the way that that the game is shaped in the NBA. I think the bigger part of it, when you look at it from a bigger picture, is you're going to have a pool of officials that have worked their way up to their individual leagues or consortiums of leagues to be valued NCAA referees based on how many calls they got right and wrong or how they adjudicated the rules. A lot of them, and the majority of them, will not be refereeing games in the first round or even the first two rounds versus teams or, or teams in a conference that they even were in to understand the style of play. And, again, I go back to my experience. when I was, The year before I got to Seton Hall, Seton Hall was in the 1989 championship game against Michigan. The year before that, they broke through, and they were a three-seed uh, out in Arizona in the West region and got stuck at the time with Western officials. And our best player, uh, big man Mark Bryant, got saddled with two quick fouls that were not fouls in the Big East. Again, that's still kind of prevalent today, although maybe not as much as it was 20 years ago. And I think what happens is you may have an overaggressive defender, maybe a, a big man that's used to, used to get drawing fouls, a guard that can drive the ball and guard fouls, how they kind of look at, at the hand-checking situation. I think those things can, can trip you up and kind of take you off your focus. If all of a sudden your best player or your best guard or your leading scorer puts you in a position that you haven't been in before because of the one-and-done scenario of this tournament, unlike during the season, you may ride it out if your best player gets two fouls. If he gets three, okay, we'll let him play. We'll make the adjustment maybe we throw his own out because this team's not that good we're playing in our conference, or maybe they have some shortcomings they can't overcome. In the tournament, though, as a coach, you're kind of forced to make decisions based on things that you can't control. And you got to remember, those three guys at Stripes out there, they're human, and they're going to make mistakes. You just hope that, that mistake doesn't affect your team. I think that's something to kind of look at is how these games are, are officiated and how that may affect how teams may have to make decisions based on who's playing and how they're playing. Sometimes that helps, but more often than not, it can really hurt you.
0: Excellent. Excellent stuff. He spent 20 years coaching in the NCAA with stops as an assistant at UCLA and as a head coach at Santa Clara. Kerry Keating joining us here on the Sharp 600. Coach, thank you so much for your time and insight. We greatly appreciate it. Absolutely. Anytime, Joe. Going to be up 500 by (laughs) midnight. Episode 83 is in the books, boys and girls. Thank you so much. For joining us today, I greatly appreciate it. This is the only episode of the week. I apologize, but the wife is traveling to Arizona for a work trip, so I am on dad duty for the first time ever Thursday through Sunday. Panic mode in my house, no doubt, but I've got to work on covering that spread before I work on covering any other spreads. And she's got me as a two-touchdown dog at the moment, so I've got to fuck up my game and work deep into the playbook but as always thank you for your continued support we are going to be back next week heavy hitting guests to get ready for march madness be well everybody have a great weekend and best of luck